Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 57. Policy in DIS is to take reasonably good care of souls awaiting resurrection. It doesn't do to have them return to life desperate to escape hell for real at any cost. Accordingly, the contract devil who owns Asmodia has her copying spell diagrams which can't be typeset for books of magic. The working conditions are pleasant for hell. There is a light that Asmodia can fuel with her blood and which bathes the workspace with a pleasant golden glow, bright enough to copy by without straining one's eyes. The chair is not uncomfortable. That makes scribes slower. There are, of course, no breaks, because petitioners do not need to eat or sleep. If Asmodia is too slow to finish a page, she is simply encouraged to drink a potion that'll aid her concentration. The potions are painful, of course, but Asmodia is, if wholly uninteresting herself, adjacent to something interesting. And so her contract devil told her in a friendly sort of voice, the secret to making the potions much less painful. It's that they separate, left on the shelf, into an oily top layer and a magically active bottom layer. It's the top layer that causes the agonizing pain. And if it's dumped out on the ground, the potion won't work. But it's all right if it's fed to a different person than the one drinking the rest. Hell's alchemists worked very diligently to achieve this effect. Since, at the moment, the contract devil is feeling generous with Asmodia, she may go out and feed the potion tops to some of the less useful apprentices. Or if she's ahead of schedule on her scribing, she may go all the way out to the waterfront and feed the first sip of the potion to the conscious, petrified angels that are spaced regularly for decor. You know, as a treat. There are many treats in Hell for the obedient. They haven't told her how long it's been. It feels like it's been days. So, probably it's been fewer days. They'll still probably raise her. They'll still probably raise her. She's not ahead of schedule on her scribing. Being good at math isn't the same as being fast at writing. She would obviously go feed the potion tops to the petrified angels if she had time, to show what a good soul she is. But Asmodia doesn't have time. So right now she's feeding the potion top to a less useful apprentice, one very close to her own desk, but not the closest one in case that was some sort of trap for lazy girls. She has no idea who this boy was in life. He looks young, but could easily have been here for a hundred years for all she knows. His tongue is burned away and reburned by the line of potions he regularly drinks. What happens to him if he doesn't drink the potions? Asmodia doesn't know. He's chained to his desk and can't stop her, doesn't try to stop her, each time she pours one of the potion tops into his mouth. Maybe he thinks Asmodia is authorized to do whatever she wants to him. Maybe he doesn't realize he could fight back. Maybe he isn't in fact allowed to fight back at anything done to him. Asmodia doesn't know. Asmodia wouldn't waste any time on pitying him, even if there was any pity left in her nature. There's very little doubt that copying spell diagrams for distribution in Cheliax is one of the best jobs in Hell, optimized mostly around maximum production for Cheliax, and hence unable to distract the petitioners too much from relatively delicate work. 
Asmodia is going to be retrained into a contract devil when she dies, and that will be much, much worse. If she could get this boy's position for herself, when she dies, by throwing him into a lake of fire to burn there forever, there's no doubt she'd do that too. Maybe that's how the boy got his position, by being extra good and doing horrible things to somebody like her. She hates him. He's so much better off than she'll be. The passive way he accepts her torments feels like he's mocking her, like he's suppressing a smile, knowing how much worse she'll get hers in time. Asmodia asks her contract devil if she's allowed to hurt that boy more for any kind of extra credit. If she has only a little extra time in her schedule, but not enough to go feed petrified angels. She doesn't want to waste potions by feeding him extra potion tops. They'll still probably raise her. They'll still probably raise her. For fun, her contract devil says. Or to get a better grade in being a scribe. Because the way to get a better grade in being a scribe is to get faster and do better work. So you will not rise in my esteem by cutting off his ears with a bit of glass grabbed off the ground. But it's an acceptable kind of fun, if you were asking if you are allowed to have any fun. She'll try having any fun, but mostly work on scribing faster and doing better work. Cutting off his ears feels more awful and poisonous than fun, but it at least feels like she's inflicting her own pain onto somebody else and showing she's not literally at the lowest rung of hell, and maybe that counts for something with somebody even if it doesn't move her contract devil any. They'll still probably raise her. She doesn't want to exist. They'll still probably raise her. Nothing good will ever happen to her, even after they do. But it will be better than this. Temporarily. Then it will be worse. They'll still probably raise her. Maybe if she focuses really hard on copying spell diagrams, she can stop constantly remembering she exists, and that will be at least a little bit like not existing. They'll still probably raise her. She hates the universe and everything in the universe because everything in the universe hates her and never helps her. No, she can't think that when she goes back. Security will hear her thinking that, and worry she's going to become a Rovagug cultist and execute her and send her straight to hell, to be tortured for real, and so she can't think that ever again. Because they'll still probably raise her. Imps flit in now and then with messages for her contract devil. That's also got to be one of the best jobs in hell. Teleporting around with wax-sealed scrolls in tiny hands. It happens often enough not to be notable. Until, reading one of the messages, her contract devil says in a tone that's somewhat less bored than usual, Set that book aside, mark your place, and come with me. Oh, you'll need shoes. Mark your place, fetch a pair of boots out of the gray and silver closet, and come with me. She obeys, new terror going through her. She could have endured this, just this, until she went back. They'll still probably raise her. But now something different is going to happen, and that will undoubtedly be worse. She puts on the boots from the gray and silver closet. They don't hurt her. Maybe they'll hurt her later. Her contract devil heads out briskly into the streets of Dis. The buildings are tall and sharp and vanish into the smoky haze above. The streets are carefully evenly cobbled with tormented human faces. Here and there they cross a bridge of red-hot metal that smells of cooking meat from all the people walking barefoot across it. One ahead of them stumbles and someone irritably kicks her over the edge of the bridge into the flowing lava below. Asmodia's boots are sufficient to protect her from the heat. The city, already dense, somehow grows denser around them, 
and the architecture more elaborate and more striking. They come at last to the palace gates, and her contract devil hands the scroll to the palace guards, and then turns back to Asmodia. Tell Carissa Sevar, he says, that you are, of course, for sale at the right price, and to look up Ahuvir Dalzamaud, who holds your soul. You're a whiny, tedious waste of space, and I hope you do manage to impress her enough to get yourself devoured forever because you can't handle existing. And he walks away, vanishes almost immediately into the crowd and into the smoke. Ahuvir Dolzamad. Ahuvir Dolzamad. Ahuvir Dolzamad. She repeats it to herself over and over as the palace guards lead her inside, because whatever else happens, forgetting her owner's name or her owner's instructions does not sound at all like a good idea. She is to tell Carissa Sevar that she is, of course, for sale at the right price, and to look up Ahuvir Dulzomaud. What's going to happen to her now? The devil was very right. She can't handle existing. There are people who do well in hell, and more people who do well in relatively light amounts of hell, and it unfortunately turns out that Asmodia is not either of those kinds of people. She's defective. She gets that. Somebody should switch her off. They'll still probably raise her. The palace guards are strangely gentle with her. She is not struck, is not told to hurry. She is told to pass through a particularly ornate set of black iron gates. Beyond them is a lush green place, as pretty as a garden and as wild as a wilderness, with flowers and bushes and trees growing either in no order or in a very careful order that mortal eyes cannot discern prettier than anything a chelish wizard student is liable to have ever seen during her mortal life in Golarion. It takes her exhausted, literally dead brain, long seconds to grasp where she would probably have to be. The gardens of Ericura, Asmodia whispers. Ericura, in adversity, Iarwain, correct. The voice seems to come from everywhere, or maybe just the inside of Asmodia's own head. It's hard to tell the difference. Ericura, lawful neutral goddess, former soothsayer of Phrasma who stole the secret to divinity from her goddess and was banished to hell as a punishment. Now, apparently, beloved consort of the archdevil Disputer, who is Lord of Dis, one of very few beings not lawful evil whom it is legal to worship at all in Cheliax. Not worship as a primary deity, of course. But if you hold Asmodeus above her, you are also allowed to worship her as well. What happens to Asmodea now? Asmodea doesn't ask. It's plaintive, whiny, pathetic. If they want her to know, they'll tell her. Unless the rules are different in Aracura's gardens. But no, no, that's too much to hope for. All hope does is hurt you. What are my orders? Asmodea says, her voice outwardly steady. She can still muster that much strength. You have no orders. You may have clothing if you wish, eat or drink if you wish that experience, explore my gardens, or find a quiet place to rest and wait to be raised. You are also allowed to leave my garden and go exploring in Dis, but I would not particularly advise it. Why? Asmodia doesn't have any words left in her. This can't be real. It's a form of torture where they let you into the gardens for a few minutes and then pull you out again and put you back at the copying table. Or somewhere much worse. It's a rather interesting question, isn't it? But you're safe for now. 
I would suggest taking this opportunity to sit down and weep. It is safer to weep here than in Cheliacs. A god of good who heard her call before, but couldn't save her then? But no, that makes no sense. How would they hold power here in hell, unless everything she's ever been told about how the entire universe works is a lie? Asmodia finds a place that looks soft to sit down, a little bed of unusually thick grass, obscured by enough trees and bushes that it might feel a little safer. She sits there. She doesn't seem to be crying yet. Part of her mind suggests that she should be terrified of her failure to follow instructions. Part is running with the theory that things are as they seem, and if they are, she can already predict she won't be punished. Safe for now, Asmodia says. Am I allowed to ask, what you mean, for now? You have one hundred years in my gardens, and if your stay of torment is not renewed before then, you will then return to hell and whatever is to be your fate. That clock only runs while you are here in hell. Your time on Galarian does not count against that stay of torment. Why, I don't understand, is somebody trying to make use of me somehow? Few souls are useful to no one. But if there is any use of you that could repay the price that has been paid for this, it is a use beyond my sight. The thought occurs to her that if she's not that useful, then someone, somewhere, she doesn't even know it's possible. But maybe possibly it's because someone somewhere in all of everywhere must. Is it because somebody cares what happens to me? Perhaps. But... Asmodia struggles for words. But... But it can't be somebody who cares about everyone, the way good might, because there are people in hell, freshly arrived in hell who might still be saved, who are much more the sort of person that a good god would care about, and going through much worse than copying spell diagrams for the time before she gets raised. They'll still probably raise her. And if you had the power to give someone a stay of torment, you would give it to them instead, unless... But it would have to be someone who cares about me personally, and there isn't anyone like that. There isn't. Nobody who has power. Nobody who means anything. Nobody who could command this, or pay for this, or bargain for this. Nobody like that cares about me. Even Carissa Savar, whatever she is, doesn't actually care about me, and wouldn't bother to save me like this. Or if she did, she'd take credit for it so I knew, and she wouldn't. She'd think I was being weak and that a short stay in hell would motivate me to work harder. For her, which it would, and she wouldn't pay me with one hundred years in advance, either. So I... I don't understand. I don't understand at all. Not all puzzles are easy for mortals to solve, and some are difficult even for gods. But if you'll pardon an old soothsayer her crypticisms, allow me to ask you this, Asmodia. Were you expecting this to happen to you? No. No, I was not, actually. Then consider that you may have been wrong about something. Wrong about what? Ah. That is the hazard of soothsaying, is it not? It is far easier to guess that you must be wrong about something than to guess what exactly it is that you are wrong about. But one of the things you believe, perhaps more than one, must clearly be wrong. Asmodia doesn't have any words left. She sits on the thicker grass and stares down at her hands. Nothing is hurting her. She isn't being forced to do anything. The thought occurs to her that this state of affairs is more pleasant than Cheliac's, and Ray's dead requires her consent. That would be why the part about 100 years, maybe, it's 
so she doesn't just stay here. But then why 100 years and not one week? She doesn't understand. But as Modia guesses that she's supposed to go back and do something, somehow, to earn the rest of her reprieve, or at least her non-existence or something, for who, who's her sponsor, how she's supposed to work for them if she doesn't know. What was she wrong about? Asmodia sits on the thicker grass and stares down at her hands. What was she wrong about? Well, either she's not a useless waste of a person, in some way that Aracura herself can't foresee, like she said, or, Aracura didn't say, that anything was beyond her sight. She just asked other questions back, when Asmodia suggested, suggested that somebody, somehow, somewhere, somewhere in all of everything, everywhere, cared about her personally, and did this for her. She does start crying then. Carissa snuggles Keltham in silence until she thinks she's not totally sure. He has fallen asleep. She's still not sure if it was in fact a good idea to push Keltham on the second law and on being more sadistic. She's not sure she'll know for a while if it was the right call or not. She understands the second law stuff better now, though she's still hoping she'll get it better still once she sees the transcripts. But she suspects it's not something she can use to do anything. Making the universe look more like a sex story will also make Keltham wonder if Cheliax is doing that on purpose. Besides how it involves lying, and lying remains very dangerous. The whole thing might have gone better without the queen involving herself, but Carissa's not actually sure. It's not as if there are a lot of agenda-free Eighth Circle casters who understand the project well enough to get through a conversation with Keltham at all. And the Queen's agenda right now seems to involve convincing Keltham that Carissa is very valuable, which does feel nice, even though it's probably false. And even though Carissa's pretty sure that anyone else would have assigned a milder punishment for what was admittedly a very insubordinate thought— but she's been having her thought transcripts read by the Queen and by high-ranking church officials for several days now while trying to run a sensitive operation, and she actually thinks most people would have had, like, two insubordinate thoughts. Or even three. Keltham awakens, feeling groggy but noticeably better. Here is his Carissa, very snugly. Outside, the rain has started to lessen a little. He can hear it. He opens his eyes. Does his Carissa look to be awake herself? Yep, holding very still so she doesn't wake him, but looking relaxed and comfortable and not at all like she's been internally contemplating how to demonstrate convincingly to Keltham that Cheliax isn't mind-controlling him, but could if they wanted to, and whether the Queen has asked to be notified when Carissa goes in for her punishment. So I'm still sort of groggy, and yet now that it sounds from the rain outside like there isn't going to be an enormous global disaster— I sure do feel weirdly better, for what are no doubt totally unrelated and coincidental reasons. In Dathilan, are people not supposed to have feelings about enormous global disasters? They're definitely supposed to, but I'm an unusually evil Dathilani, so I shouldn't have any feelings like that, clearly. Well, you know, I like you evil, but I think evil people have a preference against enormous global disasters, they're not very profitable, and the last one also led to a bunch of civil wars and so on. Probably not supposed to cry as much about them, though. I'm joking. I understand that you can classify as evil and still cry. 
It's not very chellish to cry about them, but your being here in Cheliax is, if you hadn't noticed, premised on the suspicion that we are doing evil wrong and need to learn to do it better. And maybe it will turn out that doing evil right involves more crying than is strictly conventional. Anyway, it's only me who saw, and I won't report you to your wide-eyed researchers who you want to impress. I... There's so much I need to understand about Galarian, and it seems like all I can do is ask one question after another. And there's probably some order I could ask them to make them more efficient, but I don't know what it is. So all I can do is keep bothering you like this, for which I'm sorry. Would my researchers be particularly unimpressed if they were just told the fact that I cried, even if they didn't remember seeing it? Cheliac's norms call for people to look cheerful while the world is ending and not to have been heard to have cried when it didn't. I won't ask why, if the answer is yes, just yes or no. Uh, if you weren't an alien, yes, slightly, since you are an alien, no. Right then. He doesn't ask why, as promised. Later he'll understand, no doubt. It's... I wouldn't want to have a breakdown in public, in Dathilan, either. But it's not their way to hide the fact that it occurred in private. What people see reaches them in a way they can't control. They can't stop themselves from also feeling distressed if they see you crying. They can't fully control how it changes their opinion of you either. But you can be abstract about it if you're told afterwards that it happened. So that makes it okay to tell people about things it wouldn't be okay to show them. It's not about hiding the truth. I think I should still live like that. So go ahead and tell my researchers what happened. If you say so. Squeeze. I have thought about whether there's a better order to introduce you to everything about Galerion than you asking questions, and I haven't really been able to think of one either, so go ahead and ask lots of questions, I guess. How do you feel about being rented? Keltham doesn't ask. For one thing, he still needs to query his own sexual romantic self about it first, and it's not currently active enough for that. I don't know if you're the sort of person who ever likes to talk about herself at all, but it occurs to me that, now that our relationship has moved past safe first-date activities, like you giving yourself completely to me to do anything I want, potentially including killing you, we should maybe do some more serious and heavy stuff, like me asking you about your life history. Giggle. Yes, all right, I guess that's the sort of thing people get around to on a second date. And she's got it all Taldorized and everything. So what's your life history? In six words or less. Is that a joke? World wound, wizard, weapons specialist, met Keltham. Selfish Dathalani died, met Carissa. Now the long version. She really does like him. I was born in Corinton. It's a city on the same coast as Ostenso, but pretty far, 500 miles or so, right where the inner sea opens up into the ocean. My father is a merchant. He works out what cargo will be sent in his ships to other cities, and what they'll trade for there, and he sells foreign goods to merchants in Corinton and sells chelish goods far away. I have a half-brother who's going to take over the business from him someday. That's how it's normally done. There's a lot of accumulated expertise no one's written down, so you teach your children. Teach your sons, until pretty recently. My mother is a wizard, and when she met my father was doing odd wizard work a step up from laundry, daily cooling spells for people who don't like the summer heat, comprehend languages to translate for merchants, that kind of thing. 
When I was young, there was a civil war, and that's when the queen signed her compact with hell and formed modern Chaliacs, though I don't remember much about it, except that the ships were impressed for moving soldiers around, and my father was very annoyed about it, and parts of the city where we didn't live got destroyed. My mother kept me home and tried to teach me magic. After the war, the church opened up a school for wizards in quarantine, and my mother got a job as a teacher there, and I tested in, and did very well, and when I graduated was encouraged to enlist in the Chelish army and go fight at the Worldwound, because it'd be best for my growth as a wizard and paid very generously and was also necessary to prevent the destruction of the world, which even evil people care about typically. So I enlisted, and I've served six years now, with a year off in between three-year terms. I planned to stay until I hit Fourth Circle, because I want to be Fourth Circle, and I knew in my heart I might actually stay until I hit fifth, because then you can teleport, and then I was going to open a magic shop in quarantine and have kids and be rich. So Carissa already knows herself well enough to know she'll want children. Well, she's had longer to figure it out than Keltham. Then again, some people younger than Keltham already seem to know. Why is he thinking that he doesn't know if he wants children? He was going to become a billionaire and have lots of children. It's pretty obvious on reflection that it's because these children will be real. I was born in default, the city you're born in when you're not born anywhere, particularly interesting, because your parents don't have any particular reason to be anywhere else, and so they might as well live where everybody else lives. It's the largest Dathilani city in the world, and the center of governance is there but not in the center. I got the usual education, but with fewer persistent friendships over time with other children, because my parents moved around a lot. Conventional wisdom is that more persistent friendships are better, in childhood, but my parents basically waved it off because they thought I'd be pretty much all right, even if they didn't optimize every single aspect of my childhood as hard as possible. I agree with them about that, but one still gets the impression that all of their friends were horrified, in that Dothilani way where you're privately horrified, but conceal the overt signs, because, first of all, you don't think that exerting more social pressure will help, and second, they can guess perfectly well that you're horrified. We had a small house module, maybe something like a tenth or twentieth the size of the villa that got burned down. I'm not sure at exactly what point it became clear to them that I was a little different than the other children, but it must have definitely been apparent at the point where I got one of the elaborate tests that children get in Dathilan, which aren't just there to measure us, but also to provide the results for the prediction markets that say what will happen in civilization's future. Anyways, I apparently ran across a lightly injured adult who needed me to get help, and I helped him, but I wanted to be paid for helping. I think that was when my parents decided that they'd made a mistake by assortatively mating with each other to select on the quality of reserving a little more of their life for themselves and moving a lot if they wanted to do that, even if it meant their child's life was less than perfectly optimal. I was more selfish than either of them, which doesn't always happen in a heritage mating setup like that one, but happens sometimes. And Dathilan, when you're different, if it's something they can live with at all, They'll do what they can to make life and civilization easier for you, despite you being different, because everyone is different. Somehow, somewhere, everyone needs exceptions. My parents did the very correct thing then, and sort of gently tried to offer me opportunities to be more good, if I wanted to be, but without suggesting that I couldn't still just be evil if I wanted. 
They argued with me about it, and tried to argue me into being good, but only after I started it by trying to argue them into being more evil. I left home as soon as I could pass the requisite financial maturity and self-governance tests at thirteen. I set up in a part of default, distant enough that my parents wouldn't visit me often enough to be annoying. I got a very default job, doing a thing you don't have words for, setting up high-precision processes that do things, very mundane high-precision processes, though, like some business wanted a tweak made to their high-precision process for selling things. This language really is not going to do computer programming, without a long digression, and put all the money I could into the craziest investments I could find that basically seemed to me like they should work. Some went up, some blew up. After five years of that, I was ahead of the broader market, but very barely. I was hoping to teach myself, if I kept investing like that, that I'd get good at it. For socialization, I had a circle of friends my age writing, a kind of stuff that doesn't exist here, though I did a lot more reading and only enough writing to count. But it meant that when everyone was sitting around in a circle eating whatever people had brought in and talking about everyone's work, that I could keep up and talk about it. I picked that writing circle because their themes were not quite doom-punk, not quite evil aesthetic, more like super-villainy, but not that, really. The point was that they were people who could admire people who were selfish, so long as those people were clearly fictional and they weren't out there being selfish in real life. Which, you know, beats people not even appreciating the aesthetic as an aesthetic. I thought about trying to find a circle of other more selfish people, but always decided against it, because I didn't want to take it from being my personal identity to a group identity. It was mine, and I didn't actually want to be around five other people doing it slightly differently and have debates about that. Civilization really does try hard to make it possible for people who are different to just be like that, and it's fine, and their lives aren't about being different. But a lot of us who are different don't want that. Either, we don't just want to pass through it all unnoticed. We feel like we have something to prove, not because civilization is telling us to prove it, but because we want to prove it anyways. And if what you want is to be acknowledged for it, to make people admit something, to excel so much that you're above average, civilization isn't just going to hand that to you. Not everyone can have things that not everyone can have. Carissa has no idea what to say to that, but her honest reaction is, I'm terribly glad I didn't grow up somewhere. Good, somewhere where people think they made a mistake having a child who wants to be paid for doing important work helping people. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.